Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Discourse, a short-form, one-on-one interview podcast with filmmakers, actors, and other film industry folks, brought to you by The Playlist and hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo. Today, I get to power up and talk Code 8 Part 2, which is new on Netflix as of this week. The film picks up five years after the events of the first film and follows a super-powered ex-con and his former partner, played by cousins Robbie and Stephen Amell, as they're once again forced to work together to help a young girl at the center of a police brutality conspiracy. Joining me to discuss the sequel to the highly successful Indiegogo project that went number one on Netflix are producers and stars of the film, Stephen and Robbie Amell. Robbie, you may know from his role as Firestorm in the Arrowverse shows, or The Tomorrow People, or The X-Files Revival Seasons, or Amazon's Upload is probably his most recent hit. Uh, Steven, of course, played the Green Arrow for almost a decade on the CW and led the star series Heels. He's now set to lead the highly anticipated Suits LA, so you're definitely going to be seeing him in the near future. We talk about all of those projects in the interview, but especially Code 8, 1 and 2, which they are currently promoting. Uh, If you're a fan of the first Code 8 film like I was, I think you'll very much enjoy Part 2 as it really maintains and builds off of what worked really well in the first film and keeps the heart that made the first one really sing and was its secret weapon, really. Uh, But you also really don't need to have seen the first film to watch the sequel as they do a really good job of catching everyone up. Before I shoot you over to the interview, I've got to tell you that The Discourse is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes The Playlist Podcast, Bingeworthy, Deep Focus, and more. We can be heard on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or a rating as we very much appreciate it. Or head on over to theplaylist.net for film and TV news, interviews, reviews, and more. Okay, let's jump right into my chat with the very talented cousins, Stephen and Robbie Amell. Steven, Robbie, wonderful, wonderful to speak with you. Um, I was a huge fan of the first Code 8 film. Happy to confirm for fans that the sequel does not disappoint. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So for those unaware, though, let's kind of like circle back and, and talk a little bit about developing that first one from a short to then, you know, like raising millions on Indiegogo. And, you know, it was this really cool, like 
little independent success story that you guys made. So did it just start off as that idea of like, we just want to work together, let's do it ourselves? Or was it like there was an idea there and then you guys were like, maybe this could work for that? So Jeff Chan, who directed the movie and is uh, he and Chris Pare, his writing partner, um, they wrote the short. Jeff had original. Jeff and I met years before. We always wanted to work together. He phoned me one day. He's like, I want to make a short film. It'll cost us 20 grand each. I said, okay, what's it about? And he goes, I don't know. He's like, okay, uh, I'm in. So he and Chris went to the went went to work and they brought it back. And, and um, he always had an eye for Steve and I to do it. Steve and I wanted to work together. Um, we were supposed to shoot the short together. Steve had to go back to Arrow. So we made a little bit of an adjustment. It was one of those things where we just got a little lucky. We had a lot of talented people involved. The amount of talent on the short film is wild. The cinematographer is the cinematographer of Lord of the Rings, the series. One of our storyboard artists just directed Kung Fu Panda 4. Like it was it was pretty wild. Um, the visual effects team is the same team that did part one and part two. And everyone just really gave a shit and took ownership of it and is super, super proud of what we made. And um, all the money's on screen. So, yeah, it's, it, I mean, the first one really was it was an evolving process because I was brought in originally, I think, principally mm-hmm. to help with the with the crowdfunding via my social media platforms, because with the schedule that I was working with, with on Arrow, I was incredibly dubious that I was going to be able to, to shoot this just because I had such a small window of time. And, you, you know, were Casey Jones at the time too, right? No, those that, that was a couple of years earlier. Okay. I played Casey Jones in 2015. I did press forward in 2016. And then we shot the original movie in 2017 and then did some fall, did some pickups 2018. 2018. It was really interesting because the the project kept evolving as the crowdfunding became more and more successful. Like the script was literally changing. Yeah. Uh, we're getting more money. We're getting bigger scenes. That's it. So when did it feel like for you guys, like I'm sure you're you're kind of living in a bubble with it. When did it feel like the, a success? Like was it the Indiegogo campaign, you're raising 2.5 million or was it the wide release or number one on Netflix or what? what was it? It was all those. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the first one of those was the short film going viral. The second one of those was the Indiegogo campaign over the, I think it was about a six or eight week campaign. It just kept getting bigger. And I mean, Steven was very much the driving force behind the Indiegogo campaign. He knows he knows his, his fan base and, and he knew how to deliver what they wanted. And, um, the, you know, Indiegogo kept giving us these charts from day one that tell you what you're expected to make. And, um, we kept breaking those charts, which was pretty wild. And then, um, you know, the the first one coming out on um, video and on demand on the same day, it was a day and date release for Vertical, and we set the record for uh, a day and date release for Vertical. Did we? Yeah. It's since been broken, but at the time, we set the record. Steve and I also did the, like, we bounced around to the, it was very limited theatrical release, but we got them to sell out a couple theaters, and we yep. went to those, and... Um, premieres around the world before it even came out through the Indiegogo campaign. It was kind of like one incredible moment after another. Mm-hmm. Um, and then really going number one on Netflix was when we were like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, wow. This is like, this <laughs> went from, you know, hundreds of thousands or, or a couple million people seeing this to like, oh, this is tens of millions of eyeballs watching, uh, watching our little independent film. And then, um, you know, a really cool moment was Netflix coming in and supporting us on part two and and us not having to go back to the Indiegogo well and say, help us do this again. 
Instead, we were just able to say, hey, thank you. We're going to make you a sequel, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. The, they, the, but Netflix has just been an extraordinary partner. I mean, we yeah. got to make the we got to make. Obviously, we had more money, more time. We were able to build some stages, but they trusted. They, us. they left us alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was really cool. Well, your the movie you guys made on your own went to number one, so I'm sure they don't want to mess with the magic at all. It's not um, always that easy, though. <laughs> true. <laughs> You were also like developing, like for a, sh- a short while, you were developing something for Quibi where it was going to be like a short series with you guys. Is that what Code Eight Two became? Yeah, I mean that that was a little bit. That was that was a that was really a that was really a happy accident. Yeah, so, it was a little bit of a. We were in between Code Eight Part One and Part Two, and there we had a, some really big fans at Quibi, and they came to us and they were like, "Hey." If you want to do this, we'll give you the platform to do it. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, it didn't work out over there. But at the same time, we ended up where we always wanted to be, which was which was on Netflix. One was never going to negate the other. It was kind of like maybe it was going to be a like a, a Code 1.5, if you will. Oh, that makes sense. You guys are both producers on this. Obviously, you're able to be more hands-on than than just, you know, you would be normally. I'm curious how hands-on you want to be when it comes to character and story versus being producers that kind of just give the director and writer room to to do what they want to do. Like, do you guys all have input, or or how do you prefer to work? Oh yeah, J- Jeff. Jeff is in- Jeff is incredibly collaborative. Chris is on set all the time. You know, on the on the first and the and the second film. I and mean, we again, we had more money for the second one, but we we had to find practical ways to make our days. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of where we that's where we come in with suggestions, and there's there's really not that much to do because Jeff is so prepared. Yeah, we had a great we had a great production team. You know, it's interesting to hear about all the fires which are happening on every project all the time, and a lot of times you are you are kept from those if you're just acting. Um, so it's it's good and it's a little scary to be honest with you. You're like, all right, how can we fix this? And a lot of it is just stuff that's out of your control a lot of it is weather-based to be honest we were shooting in in october november december in toronto and there were certain scenes we were like okay well if it's gonna start snowing and snowing hard on thursday maybe we're not shooting that scene maybe we're punting friday or maybe we're punting thursday to friday and we're trying it so you know things that you don't necessarily think about um that are a big deal but as far as like the character work goes we're very lucky to have jeff and chris who are are very good at what they do, but also very collaborative. We come to set and it's kind of, okay, what's the best version of the scene? Once we put it on its feet, does it work? Do we need to make any adjustments here? But that's not only for producers either. Like yeah. any of our actors who are coming in, it's a very collaborative space. Everybody's got, you know, everybody's opinion is is being heard. It also seems like, you know, the team you guys put together, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, they're pros. Like Jeff knows how to make... 2.5 million look like 30 million and you know th- yeah. this time around it, it looks even bigger so it's got to be like uh you guys being in the business for as long as you have is it just kind of assembling this murderer's row that you all have as far as contacts jeff will be the first person to tell you he's really good at hiring and <laughs> um he came up he, he came up in film school in toronto a lot of the guys we work with are people he came up with. You know, Mike Heathcote, our A camera operator, we had to steal him back from the Transformers movie that was shooting in Toronto uh, for our movie. 
And then we had to let him go a few days early to go shoot Creed three with Michael B. Jordan. So <laughs> it's one of those things where we, we, we essentially use Guillermo del Toro's crew when he's not filming in Toronto. It's the, it's, we've got the best of the best, but at the, you know, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is passion and pride and people take a ton of pride in their work on code eight. They take ownership of it. They're excited to show it to their friends and their family. And their input matters. Everybody's, you know, everybody's got a creative force on this movie. So what were the creative mandates moving forward on part two? The first one obviously stemmed from, you know, the the conversation around police corruption and brutality and all that stuff. And obviously the treatment of, you know, the other in our society. So what did you want to expand on and bring bring to the sequel that you guys were really pumped about? I mean, Jeff and Chris are really good at trying to find something that is relatable and something that is happening and mirroring it from our society to to film. And, you know, first and foremost, our job is to entertain. But Code 8 lives in this gray space. It's not black and white. It's not right or wrong. People make decisions, sometimes for themselves, sometimes for others. And not everybody's going to agree with them all the time. Films are subjective and life is all about perspective. And it changes. And that's kind of what we wanted to have. We wanted to have a movie that makes you think, but doesn't feel like we're shoving anything down your throat. Mm -hmm. um, and we add a little popcorn with some visual effects and some sci-fi elements. The first one kind of amazed me with the special effects. Like how, did you guys only have the 2.5 that you raised or was there no. a little extra? Our first Ooh, one, our first one was a little bigger. We worked with Telefilm as well. Telefilm okay. is a the great government uh, fund that works for the arts. Um, we had one equity financier. Uh, so I won't give you the full budget, but it was it was under ten million Canadian. Yeah, that's that still looks way bigger. Yeah, it's it's oh, yeah. impressive. Our visual effects company they are they they're the same guys from the short and the first movie and the second movie, and they are spectacularly good. Yeah. So was it an a matter of scheduling or an active decision to kind of shift away from like Nia and Sung Kang's detective character? Did they were they ever going to come back, or was it just like they're busy? It was more of a where does this story go, and mm. uh, and this was the best version of it that Chris and, and Jeff put together. Um, we loved both. We have loved having both of them. Um, you know, Sung was fantastic, and Sung also took a chance on us with the short film, which was amazing. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of his. But um, you know, when Jeff and Chris start writing, they just start looking for you know what works, where is it? Um, also, part two. Although part one makes part two better, you don't actually have to have seen it no. to to watch it. It's you know both movies can stand alone, but they both enrich each other. Yeah, yeah. You also do a good job of setting up where things you know left off. You're able to kind of give a quick like little update and montage to to get people up to speed. So, yeah, I would say you don't need to have seen if if you're confused and you're like, what's going on here? Definitely, yeah, you don't need to check it. You know. Netflix is much bigger than it was when the first yeah. movie came out. So you're going to have some people that watch part two because hopefully it's, you know, it's right in front of them. Um, and and then they go, hold on a second, let me watch part one. Or you'll have some people see it and go, all right, let me watch part one first. And then hopefully they make it to part two. So your characters, um, Garrett and Connor, they're they're kind of two sides of this same coin where one's more of like an idealist who just kind of believes in doing what's right, that kind of thing. And one's kind of, he lives more in the gray area. And, Correct. and he, you know, he doesn't mind doing a little bad to do a little good. Did you really want to drive home that divide in this one when it comes to where these characters stand on, on that boundary? 
I don't I don't know. I don't I don't think about it that critically. No, I think it's just <laughs> where the characters have have yeah. kind of evolved. You know, at the beginning of the movie, Connor, it, there's a there's a real I don't want to I, I don't want to get involved with the the path side of things when when he's kind of being told, hey, get her out of here and save her. He's like, I don't I, it's not my business. I don't want to do this sort of thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, who he is, is is the guy who will go out of his way to help somebody. But Connor is, you know, he's five years in prison. He's just trying to, like, live a very quiet life. And, you know, Garrett's been building. And yeah. uh, and I understand, like, you know, Garrett's doing good things for his community, whether or not you agree with how he's doing them. There's definitely upside. I was, I mean, just watching it and kind of seeing where things go, it almost feels like, and I hate to compare it to X-Men, but, you know, there's there's a little bit of crossover there in, in what the kind of themes that this explores and the superpowers and all that. But there's almost like a Professor X and Magneto relationship where you could see one of them becoming more of like the evil kind of guy that, you know, does things in the shady area and one becomes like the good guy assembling his team. Is that something you guys have an eye on? Are you thinking of part three at this point? Jeff and Chris are definitely thinking of part three, but you know it all comes down to performance. And if people watch it, then we get to keep making it. We love this world. I think there's a lot more to this world to offer. Mm -hmm. I mean, we built you know two feels bigger than part one, yeah. and and it continues to build on that world. You know, we're fans of X Men. We're fan of Marvel. We're fan of DC. And um, you know, there will always be some parallels. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think I think the interesting comparison you make with the the magneto and and professor x thing is you have people that will agree with what both of them are doing yeah right and i think that that makes for interesting storytelling is you know there's there isn't a definitive right or wrong here there is you know this is how i'm doing it and this is why i'm doing it and some people with it will agree with it and some people will not Absolutely. Uh, I also have to say, as you can see with the poster behind me, I am a massive X-Files fan. So I'm going to ask X an X-Files question just because right. it's my late father's favorite show. It kind of became oh. mine as well after he passed because of just revisiting it. You obviously, uh, Robbie, had a big role in the revival seasons as with Agent Miller. It's like almost they were setting up a spinoff, but, you know, I'm not sure that it you know came to fruition between like Miller and Einstein. Did you ever get the sense that that was happening? They did talk about it. I'll give you, I'll give you'll like this story. I'll just give you the story because if you and your dad were fans of this, I think you'll dig it. My first scene on set was myself and Einstein and Jillian um, or, and Mulder and Scully all in the, in the office. And um, I hand my card to David and, uh, and he takes it. He looks at it. He puts it in his pocket. So we filmed the first take. He puts it in his pocket. I go to get it from him. And uh, he's like, I'm keeping this one. I was like, okay. So props gives me another one. And I hand it to him and he puts it in his pocket. And he's like, I'm just going to keep all these. And I'm like, okay. And so props co or props comes over to me and he's like, he's like, don't worry, I made a stack. And I'm talking to David after. And he was like, you're named after my son. And so my character name is Agent Kid Miller. And he named, um, Chris named the character after David's real life son. So he just kept stacking all of the cards to give to his kid kid and uh, i just thought that was very cool but both of them were incredible to work with very kind very supportive um chris was a genius it was it was very cool for me nice 
wonderful to see, you know, more adventures with with all you guys. So I, I'd love to see wherever that goes. But Steven, I'm also a big wrestling fan. Uh, yeah, I I watched Heels season two, which is not easy to track down right now. I don't know if you know. No, it's not. No, Stars took it off their platform to for a tax write off. Is that what it was? Uh huh. Oh my god! What yeah. a business we live in. I mean, listen, I I, I I have I have nothing but wonderful things to say about Stars. Um, uh, the the whole the whole team there, everyone, you know, Jeff Hirsch and everyone, they treated us great. We wanted the first productions to go back, um, you know, post COVID or I guess during COVID. Um, and I know that they are actively um, trying to place it uh, at a streamer. So um, they're still looking. Yeah, they, they have to. Um, there has to be a deal in place in case it does go on a streamer and it, and it blows up. They have to have a deal in place for season three. So I think that they're still ironing that out. I would personally like for it to end up on Netflix because I would like uh, I would like more people to see it. Very proud of that show. Yeah, and it it obviously leaves off you know in a very ominous tone. You don't want to just drop it as maybe my character's paralyzed now or whatever. Yeah, I, I I don't want Jack to literally go out on his back. Yeah, that would be a bit of a bummer. Um, yeah. obviously the big buzz right now, which uh, was was reported recently, is Suits LA. You just booked that one. Congrats on that. That one's going to be absolutely massive. I watched Suits back when it first came out. So it was a, it was kind of funny to see it blow up this past year like it did. Yeah. Did yeah. you come to it pretty early on or did you just come to it when you heard about, you know, Suits LA and all that stuff? I just came to it when I when I heard about Suits LA. I'm mm -hmm. on the fence if I'm going to watch the original series or not. So you still haven't watched it. Ooh. I haven't seen it. So no. wow. search the best of Somebody, somebody will outline like the 15 best episodes for sure. Okay. Yeah. The pilot's really solid. So it might be good to start there. Okay. Um, do that. But yeah, looking really, really looking forward. When does that start shooting? Yeah. Uh, we go to camera in early April up in, uh, up in Vancouver. We're going to do a couple of days in LA uh, as well on the, on the pilot. And um, yeah, they're, they're still casting. And I know that they're still casting because I'm, I'm getting, bombarded with text messages from various people that are going into hey i'm reading yeah <laughs> is it one of those where they're planning on bringing back characters at all do you know that no idea <laughs> i'm just there um but robbie i know uh speaking of continuing series obviously upload has not been canceled at this point i don't think do you know anything about a season four green light no <laughs> he says smirking <laughs> oh, he does. Know. He does know. He's just not going to tell you nothing. I get it. about anything. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I love the show. I love the cast. I love the crew. I would really, really like to be able to finish the show without it. The cliffhangers are massive. The response to the show has been incredible, and I feel like it's only been growing. So, fingers crossed. I know Greg is trying very hard. Uh, with Amazon to to get us that final season. You guys have, you know, certainly left your mark on like the super powered story between, you know, the Code 8 world, you know, Arrow and Firestorm, Tomorrow People, you know, all these different things that you guys have done. Do you feel like it's time to walk away from those kinds of roles or do you you feel like maybe, you know, there's there's still a chance for those characters to return or to jump back into that kind of superhero world? I'll never say never, but I think it's it's hard. It's so much of it is rights driven and mm -hmm. 
But I, look, stranger things have happened. As you've seen with Suits, a, a show that was long since finished uh, has a massive resurgence on Netflix. And now Steve is doing, you know, Suits LA. So stranger things have happened. Yeah. But uh, uh, for the most part, I think it's definitely an uphill battle to have things revived or yeah. given an additional season once they're gone. Yeah, I mean, I, I just adored playing the Green Arrow. I didn't want to be done with the character forever. I just wanted to be done with it in like twenty three episodes a year on every <laughs> Like I was, I was ready. I was ready for. I was ready for uh, for a break. But listen, if I didn't miss it. I wouldn't have gone back for that one episode in the last season of The Flash. Yeah. Love to play character. Would love to bring it back in some sort of limited series where we could uh, get around the fact that I, I think in the in the finale, like I I must have killed like seventy five people, but we weren't allowed to show blood. <laughs> so maybe like a maybe like a Netflix or a Max or something like that. Yeah, get some get some hard drop. hard art hard art. That's exactly no, precisely right. I think people would I think people would love that. I'd love to come back and do that. Um, the cool thing about that too is most of the I mean, not to say the whole fan base was young when watching it, but at this point, they will have all aged to a point where they can handle a little more. The number of people that came up to me and went, "Dude, you were my childhood." I'm yeah, like, you're 25. Why are you saying? <laughs> Well, I was already an adult and I was watching anyway, so I don't, okay. uh, you know, I, I don't know. But um, how do you, I mean, as far as like the legacy of the CW shows, obviously they have a really hard following in, in yeah. that everybody's like, they're they're constantly showing up to all like conventions that you guys do and stuff like that. Um, it was definitely an era and it seems to be kind of coming to an end. It seems like CW's kind of in flux right now. Have you had a point where you kind of struggle with the the CW show's legacy at all, or do you find if you've always felt grateful for those roles and, and those characters? Oh no, I'm 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 forever grateful. You know, Mark Pedowitz, who who ran the CW when we were there, was just such a he was so loyal and thoughtful. Um, Peter Roth and everyone at Warner Brothers, um, you know, it, it was it it was like a, a decade of superhero television. Yeah, which um, was really cool because when our pilot came out, I'll never forget the review in Entertainment Weekly where it said, "You know, this is a decent pilot, but um, superhero shows on television don't work." Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if Craig Berlanti read that. He did review. I'll show you. <laughs> just to spite, just out of spite, he made the Arrowverse. Yeah, um, that's hilarious. It, it actually makes me think that there's something wrong with TV ratings too. Like the the sheer popularity of those shows and the numbers that they pulled on paper made no sense at all. Yeah, <laughs> just it, there's just it just didn't make any actual sense. So you know that's for that's a that's a conversation for another day. But the shows were so popular, and um, you know they were a big driving force behind uh, Code Eight for us too. You know yeah. I don't think that we ever we the first movie is never never even close to that big without the Indiegogo campaign and the Indiegogo campaign doesn't do anything close to that without, you know, without the, the fans from the Arrowverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet I don't think they ever crossed you guys. You, did you ever have a dialogue with one another? Your character, Oliver Queen? We team up against reverse flash in it's either the finale or the second last episode of the last episode of, of the flash, but uh, they didn't even let us talk to each other. They should, I it's mean, like you, you could have had a whole like episode or you know an arc with you two, yeah. but uh, 
Yeah, not so much. Your friendship on another earth. <laughs> yeah. Ronnie and Oliver. I'm uh, taking up plenty of your time, guys. I will just say for our listeners, Code 8 Part 2 releases on Netflix on February 28th. Robbie and Steven are excellent, as always. Guys, uh, I really appreciate the time and, and can't wait to talk to you again for, for what's coming up, whether it's Upload, you know, uh, Suits LA or whatever it is. Do you guys have anything else coming up besides those? I'm, I'm pretty sure those are busy enough. Just Code 8 hardcore right now yeah we're deep in it and uh that's the one i gotta get to this press conference and uh, this press tour and then gear up for uh gear up for suits because everyone assumes that it's going to be a massive hit which he's not adding any pressure whatsoever <laughs> well it, it became like the biggest show of all time almost you know this year and you're just like where did that come go from on, go on <laughs> <laughs> so no pressure at all uh, but either way, I appreciate your time, guys. I love both Code 8 movies. Can't wait for three because it's happening. Thanks, man. We'll see you guys later. Yeah.